trying to forget, but you can't do that. Pot bird, pot rat, pot voice, pot elephant, trying to forget, but you can't do that. Pot bird, pot rat, pot voice, pot elephant, trying to forget, but you can't do that. Hi everyone, this is Ralph Ben Mergy, and I have a new show here on CIUT. It's called The New Sabbath Project, and we'd love you to join us for conversations about all things related to culture, citizenship, community, spirituality, and religion. The New Sabbath Project here on CIUT 89.5, Sundays at 2 p.m. Located steps away from College Subway Station, Magic Lantern Carlton Cinema offers $7 tickets to students for every movie, every showtime. Check carltoncinema.ca for showtimes. Urbane Cyclist specializes in urban active transportation. Check out our custom bikes built in-house, from fixies to touring and comfortable commuters, as well as great brands like Opus and KHS. Already have a bike? Our services and parts department is there for you. Just call us and make an appointment. Students get 10% off parts and accessories. Urbane Cyclist is a worker cooperative. 180 John Street, Downtown Toronto. The evolution continues. CIUT 89.5, Toronto. Live from the Hart House studio at the University of Toronto, this is the Keenan Wire radio program for Wednesday, August 7th. We're live on the air on 89.5 FM in Toronto, worldwide at CIUT.FM on the web. You can download a podcast of this program at thegridto.com. Today on the show, I have this notion that cities are just stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. That's the first line of my book, and I believe it. And we'll be hearing some stories about ourselves today throughout the show from Murmur, which is celebrating 10 years of local oral history. I'll be joined for the show by one of its founders. It's also the 10th anniversary of Young Dundas Square, and Rob Ford is back in the news our media assassin panel will be here to talk about the news, all the news that's fit to debate, McAuliffe's music picks, and more over the next hour. Thanks for listening in. First off, I'd like to introduce my special guest co-host for today. He's a good friend of mine, columnist for the Toronto Star, founder of Murmur, editor of Spacing Magazine, and author of the book Stroll, Psychogeographic Walking Tours of Toronto. Th- it's Sean McAuliffe. Thanks for being here, Sean. Hello, Edward. How are you doing today? I think we're doing okay. Yeah, uh, that's good. Um, we got a ton of stuff to discuss today, of course, but um, like, let's start off. I, I wrote a blog post that seemed to be getting a lot of attention, and it's, it's basically about that photo of Rob Ford uh, that we've all seen a million times on the cover of newspapers, on websites, Gawker, the Toronto Star. Everybody else has picked it up. There's four people in this photo and a house in the background. One of the people in the photo has been shot dead. Two others are under arrest. The fourth man is Rob Ford, the mayor of Toronto. And I don't think we've ever got an adequate explanation for how that photo came to be taken. 
I mean, we've been obsessing about this alleged video that that uh, two star reporters and a Gawker reporter say they've seen that they say appears to depict the mayor smoking crack, and that has eaten up all kinds of space. But in the background of that story, there's there's this photo that's never been explained. Yeah, that photo. Um, if you think about that, sorry, uh, mic wasn't working. There you are. Uh, yeah, that photo. If you Imagine it's been hanging out for three months with us, right? It almost seems like a fictional photo because nothing's happened with it. But any one aspect that you just mentioned, um, if it was in a photo in a, in a Toronto that was sort of not yet through the looking glass, it would be a massive scandal. But there are all these elements in this, in this photo. It's yeah, amazing. I mean, so just, just to recap it, there's, there's uh, one man in the photo uh, was gunned down outside a nightclub in an apparently targeted shooting. Another one uh, was also shot at the same time, but survived with minor injuries. He uh, is now been, he was arrested during the Project Traveler sweep uh, for, I I believe, gun, drug, and gang-related charges. Uh, The the other person in the photo also was picked up in the Project Traveler sweep. The house in the background is, uh, according to reports uh, from Neighbors, a notorious drug house. It also happens to be owned by a high, or one of the residents is a high school friend of Rob Ford's, which provides a, a different kind of connection to the mayor than just he happened to be walking by. Uh, now, the person who provided that photo, we don't know if it's the person who took it, but the person who provided that photo to the newspapers in the first place, we just learned on Friday, is, was also picked up in Project Traveler on a whole slew of gun and drug charges and was stabbed inside the Don Jail uh, you know, after his arrest. And so there's, 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 there's a lot of bad mojo in that photo, a lot of connections to violence, to the drug trade, and to the, the you know, police investigations. Yeah, and then there's the mayor, and all he says is, I take photos with a lot of people. It's almost like if you stuff enough news into one photo, it overwhelms people, and it, it has no effect. Um, but also, it, it's, it's either that or... Or, or a, a commentary on maybe the state of Canadian politics and public life that um, something like this can exist in the air for three months in a city, in an, in an intense media-rich city where everyone talks about this and nothing happens. It's kind of amazing. <laughs> I mean, I get, I get worried about guilt by association, but I think, you know, there, there are, I can imagine hundreds of possible completely innocent, legitimate explanations for how a high-profile politician gets into a photo like that. There was, there was a case, uh, you know, I, I think it was a year or two ago, where the mayor was in a photo shaking hands with a, prom- with a white supremacist who was in a full sort of fascist-style military uniform, uh, you know, and there's the mayor shaking his hand. And as soon as that came out, the mayor's office issued a statement saying, that was at the mayor's annual New Year's levy. People line up for hours to take their picture with the mayor. He shakes hands with all of them and takes their pictures. He doesn't ask anything about them. He had no idea about this guy's background, didn't know what the uniform signified, and that was it. That was the end of it, right? That if, if there's a legitimate explanation, all you have to do is offer it, right? But, but this is a... There's nothing in the photo that says the mayor is guilty of anything, but it does seem to me like there are lots of things in the photo that bear an explanation. You know, we, we demanded an explanation while Mel Lastman, uh, you know, the mayor from a decade ago, shook hands with a member of the Hells Angels, right? I, don't, I, don't, I think it's fair 
to ask for an explanation for this. And he was answering that uh, long after he wasn't mayor. Uh, people would bring up Mel Lastman, the Hells Angels at City Hall, and his kind of enthusiasm about about that handshake, much more enthusiastic than, or, or almost as enthusiastic as Rob Ford looks in, 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 the, in the notorious <laughs> picture. Um, but again, that was 10 years ago, and you, that, that's a good kind of bookend of, of, of these past 10 years in Toronto, in that I think that photo with Mel Lastman was part of the... I don't know, the downfall of Lastman, that kind of the last nine months of his term, uh, if you if you remember those days, um, just had these things just started to sort of add up that it was time to go. And this and that photo was a big part of it. And and this photo, which was much more incriminating and no offer of explanation given, doesn't do anything. Well, the interesting thing about that is that, as you say, there was a series of things in Mel Lastman's last days uh, including, you know, sort of the cancelling of the Adams Mine, uh, his comment about the International Olympic Committee, uh, you know, about going to Africa, that he was afraid cannibals were going to boil him in, in a big pot of water, uh, his uh, his remarks about the WHO, like, who are they? Uh, who is the who? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, um, when, it, when it came to the SARS crisis, there was this whole series of things that started to happen right at the end that made us think, oh, geez. Um, but but with Rob Ford, it seems to me, and I don't pretend to be, uh, have been, you know, uh, completely unbiased and uh, uh, balanced about this from the beginning. I, I was not a Rob Ford fan from the beginning. But it seems to me that, you know, the last couple years of his mayoralty have been a series of things that make you think, oh, geez, it's time to go. Uh, but but his explanation or his his approach has been to like never admit any wrongdoing, never apologize, and increasingly just never explain. He says anything else, mm-hmm. and ke- and people keep that ship going forward, um, or he keeps the sh- his ship going forward, and nothing uh, nothing affects it. And you know you see this on Twitter sometimes. People will say, why isn't the media doing anything? But the media sort of did everything they can do. They asked for a month every day um, about this. This, this picture and he stonewalled them um, and, and there's nothing more they can do so they kind of have to move on well that's as a member of the media that's a big, that's a big thing for me is that if, if I write about this every week, every day until we get answers I could be writing about it forever and in the meantime the business of the city is going on and I, I have to by the very nature of the way you know, I'm only one person, I have to ignore other things in order to focus on this and so so that this is the big question: is that do you let him just get away with not offering an explanation when when you believe that we are owed one, uh, not getting satisfactory answers, and ignore this other stuff, or do you, or do you, you know, uh, yeah. would, would I don't I don't know exactly how to approach it because I get a lot of complaints that we've sort of somehow l- let this alleged crack video story fade into the background. And I get another a lot of other complaints that it's all I ever talk about, and uh, I don't think I've done either of those things. But but it it is hard to know what to do when when the response is I'm not going to answer any questions about this, and uh, and and he sticks to that response. The only mechanism the media has is further investigation um, into the photo and the stories behind it, and and as far as I know, that's ongoing from a few of the uh, the, the, the papers around town. But the onus really goes back onto uh, the rest of us as civilians, citizens of Toronto, um, who who have to do something. Um, and it's a similar argument uh, a couple of weeks ago with with the Scarborough subway um, across the city. People who are thinking about. Trans- 
transit, we're a little bit aghast, a lot aghast at what was going on uh, at City Hall about the Scarborough subway. Um, but then in the end, maybe it comes down to what the people of Scarborough want and because and, it's their future. Uh, and and if, if you don't have a chorus of voices from Scarborough or now across the city for the Ford picture and, and other things, um, maybe maybe it just flip fades away and, and the city keeps trucking, as, <laughs> the Ford might, as, as the Fords might say. Well, it is, it is interesting that the city does uh, keep trucking, and it seems to keep trucking through quite a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I have this feeling that, uh, that things, uh, it's like bugs in a computer. You know, like y- your computer doesn't cause you any problems for a long time, and occasionally it crashes, and then you open it back up. And then one day, all those small problems have accumulated and your computer no longer works. And I worry that in the long term, that will happen to the city. But there is an amazing sort of capacity to just, like, keep on going and be fine, even when there's chaos at City Hall. The city seems to do pretty good. Yeah, a lot of people talk about uh, resiliency now in cities, uh, and it generally is about uh, climate change or you know population explosions and and this and that. And, and cities have the ability to uh, you know pivot around and, and, and accommodate things. But maybe Toronto's an example of of how you know a, a, a almost alpha city can 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 be resilient in the face of uh, you know a breakdown at the highest of like, office. Uh, do you have beta? Admi- no, not just a beta administration, uh, an omega administration. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, well, we'll be talking about a lot more, um, you know, related to that and unrelated to it uh, in, in, you know, the rest of the show. Uh, we, we were, I just kind of themed to me about Toronto stories, uh, maybe because I think of you as a storyteller and somebody who appreciates the city as a story uh, and and because, of course, of what the Murmur Project is. So I asked you for some uh, song suggestions that that are uh, stories about Toronto or stories involving Toronto, and and your uh, first one you came up with automatically was uh, a live version of uh, Bob Cajun yeah. by the Tragically Hip. I believe this is recorded live in Toronto uh, about nine years ago in two thousand four, I think two thousand six at the ACC. Yeah. yeah, it's from the album That Night in Toronto. Yeah, so let's listen to uh, that now. Okay, so there's this cop, and he's in love with a girl from the country. (laughs) Around Bob Cajun.
Game. 
Welcome back to the Keenan Wire radio program. I'm joined in the studio today by guest host Sean McAuliffe. Sean, you, you, why do you like that, that hip song? Well, it's one of the songs that reflect Toronto and Toronto area back at, at us, and we don't have that much of it. Um, there's a lot, there is more of it now, but historically, Canadian artists tended to sing about, you know, kind of general places. Um, and, and the hip was one of the bands that, that, uh, talked about Toronto, talked about Canada. That song in particular, it's a nice connection between, you know, downtown Toronto. He makes references to, I think, the horseshoe, you know, the black and white tiles, and Bob Cage in the 905 or 705 or wherever it is. <laughs> Cottage country, yeah. Yeah, and, and it's just kind of that rural city connection, uh, which is nice. Um, and then and then this live version uh, at, at two minutes in when he mentions that Toronto line that night in Toronto and the kind of crowd goes wild it feels like it sounds like those 1970s you know American rock and roll uh, working class bands you know like at Boston Gardens or Detroit's Cobo Hall Bob Seger kind of thing uh, where the crowd just has this intensity and we don't hear that much in Toronto Toronto's kind of a chilled out to be right. charitable a chilled out uh, audience um, yeah for so concerts nice. at least um, you know, Sean's with me in particular to discuss a few different an- anniversaries, especially 10th anniversaries. Uh, 2003, it seems like, was a big year, or at least a big year for you and I and uh, many of our friends and many of our colleagues. Um, I think you and I met in 2003. If it wasn't 2003, it was very late 2002. Uh, but my column this week is about the 10th anniversary of Young Dundas Square, the civic space monument to the art of advertising, front lawn for the Eaton Center. Uh, the square is having a big free concert on Friday to celebrate a decade of its existence. I guess they got the Divine Brown, Royal Wood, and Spirit of the West playing down there, uh, and, you know, a liquor license and everything. But um, what what are your thoughts on Young Dundas Square 10 years in? I like it. I walk through it, and there's always people in it. And that's sort of how I judge a space uh, in the city. Um, you know, we followed the it, its inception, uh, and it had a rough couple years to begin with when they tried to figure out, are they a public square, which they are, uh, which was managed somewhat privately. Uh, and they do have security guards there. Um, and, and for a while, people would do uh, uh, protest actions, and they would get uh, moved out, sometimes arrested. There would be uh, chalking actions. Um, so it had a rough start, which I think a lot of people still remember who were around at that time. Um, some people don't like the signs and everything, but that kind of that's that's on private property. You know, I think of the square yeah. as a as, as a bit separate from that. Um, also, you know, one part of the city can just have this kind of unbridled electric. Uh, crap storm <laughs> yeah. stuff which is just sort yeah, of yeah I was really skeptical about Young Dundas Square when it was being built both because like I I resented this sort of open conscious effort to mimic Times Square and that was especially with the advertising towers which were part of the plan from the beginning right but uh and then when it was first built, uh, the building on the northeast side was still under construction for years after after Young Dada Square itself opened. And I would go down there, and it just looked like a barren, uh, bleak bus shelter or bus platform with no buses uh, to me. Uh, but I've I've warmed up to it a lot, and I think you know th- there's some genius in the barrenness of the square itself now that everything else is finished because people from Ryerson University people shopping at the Eaton Center people going to the live theater just down the street people checking out the the head shops and strip clubs that are still up Young Street a little bit uh they all have to pass through there and that makes it a great place to people watch a great place for other people to hang around and kids are always playing in the fountains 
in yeah. the summertime. Uh, it's nice to go there in the winter, uh, you know, it's covered in snow and you just see the, the paths, I guess they're called desire lines, um, that people take. And it's always uh, well, well-trod paths across the uh, Yeah, those the fountains, the geysers that spring yeah. up from there. Is a, you know, Rob Ford was like uh, overjoyed when he visited, was it Calgary, and saw those, that their mm-hmm. Civic Square has those. Edmonton. Edmonton, yeah. sorry. Uh, that their Civic Square has those. And, and we have them there. I mean, what's equally important to me about Young Dundas Square actually is... Um, is is what's across the way from it like because it, the, the square itself is actually just a good place to look around and you know you've got all oh, those drummers who beat away on drums and on on you know empty buckets and stuff across one street you've got all the protesters you've got the preachers and all of that that break dancers all of that that street performing that takes place usually across the street from young Dundas square still is this, an essential part of my my mental image of what that square is yeah and, and thinking of, of 10 years, uh, I, I remember the first moment Dundas Square felt like a part of Toronto, and it was February, I think, of or January of, of 2003, uh, and there was the anti-Iraq war demo, uh, which was massive, you know, in Toronto terms, maybe 40,000 people, 50,000 people, that started at Dundas Square, and it was the first kind of really political thing that wasn't a commercial uh, moment, and uh, it, it was an amazing protest with, you know, uh, teachers and, and middle class mm. people down to the anarchists, um, not the usual mix. Uh, then it marched away and it was a sub zero day. Uh, and it felt like Dundas Square had arrived at that moment and it had the capacity to be a commercial place uh, where, you know, where there's Nike demonstrations and, and whatever else um, to concerts to uh, a sometimes political. And now, you know, there was a, a, a couple great. Uh, well-attended Idle No More demos in the last mm-hmm. year and other uh, 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 during the Arab Spring. Um, it was a focal point. So so it, it, it plays a lot of roles for the city. No, yeah, not to trivialize any of those important political protests, but the uh, the demonstration I'm, I'm most looking forward to at Young Nada Square yet to happen, which is the demonstration of celebration after the Toronto Maple Leafs win the Stanley Cup. But... Uh, you know, uh, may- maybe not in my lifetime, but we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, also in 2003, let's see, the Spacing Magazine was founded, which we both have a, a history with. Uh, so this big SARS stock concert was in the summer of 2003. There was a massive blackout. That's next week, I 2003, think, right? uh, Which, the blackout? Yeah. I think so, yeah. Uh, Miller, David Miller was elected at the end of 2003. Of course, also, uh, you were the founder of... Um, one of the founders, one of three yeah. founders of uh, an interesting uh, place-based oral history project, Murmur. Yes. What? So, well, Murmur is a, uh, well, think back 10 years ago, there were no smartphones. Um, a few people had cell phones. I didn't have a cell phone, um, but people were starting to buy cell phones. And uh, the, uh, the uh, Toronto was at this point where it seemed like it was starting to wake up. Uh, it was an interesting city, but people weren't telling its stories. Um, so three of us developed a project where we would record stories, really short anecdotal stories told in the first person uh, by regular folk about sp- certain spots. And in that spot, put a sign up with a phone number that people can call with their newfangled cell phones and hear stories. Um, and we launched it uh, two weeks ago, 10 years ago in Kensington Market. Uh, and it's since spread. Uh, we have around 250 or more signs around Toronto and in 20-some cities around the world, but it was really a Toronto project. Uh, okay. And I think, I think because the city was in the strange position of not, uh, not, not being aware of its stories or not being proud of its stories, so in a really subtle way, we wanted to change that a bit. 
Okay, um, we're going to come back and we're going to listen to a bunch of murmur stories uh, later in the program. But uh, first we're going to take a music break. This is another great Toronto story uh, by Pucka Orchestra. Um, it's uh, it's <laughs> the Cherry Beach Express, which is a bit of a bleak Toronto story. Welcome back to the Kingdom Wire radio program on CIUT 89.5 FM. If you're just joining us, want to get in on the conversation, you could tweet me at the Keenan Wire. 
Uh, you know what? I'd like to hear from you. I like to hear from all kinds of people, and I especially like to hear from my friends uh, who I invite into the studio to discuss the news with me, uh, the Media Assassin panel. We don't have our theme music this week. There's a special, uh, you know, the, the, the theme music of silence, which I don't want to give more than like a half a second of. Um, but um, with me in the studio today, uh, Sean McAuliffe has been here since the beginning of the show. He's still here. Also with us, Torontoist reporter, Democratic activist Desmond Cole. Thanks for coming, Desmond. Thanks for having me. Um, uh, Globe and Mail columnist, editor at the Ethnic Isle website, magazine ri- writer <laughs> at large, Denise Balkasun. Hi. Uh, and Queen's Park reporter with QP Briefing, John Michael McGrath. Hi, Ed. Uh, you guys are going to have to talk uh, directly. Hello, into Ed. <laughs> yes, thanks, thanks. We're in a special upstairs studio today because... Uh, because special, it's a special episode. <laughs> um, so we're just figuring out some of the technical kinks. So um, I already talked with Sean and I talked about the Ford photo, uh, the crack scandal, blah, blah, blah. We probably talked about it for too long. So let's skip that. But another City Hall story that, that uh, was on the papers this week uh, is, you know, contracting garbage in the East End. And it's inevitably, obviously, going to be part of the next election campaign. Uh, Thoughts? <laughs> you know, it seems to be working in the West End as far as actually getting the garbage picked up is concerned. Yeah, I, I guess my question is is whether anybody thinks this is actually going to have the kind of emotional punch that the issues that Ford ran on in 2010 had. I mean, in 2010, voters were in an ass-kicking mood, and Rob Ford promised the largest boot. And in 2014, I mean, it, it, it seems to have been dr- drained of its emotional energy, I think. Right. Now, um, I mean, obviously, the union uh, will oppose contracting it out, but also a lot of supporters of the union, supporters of other things, will, will make the same argument, I think, that they made last time, which is that the any money we save comes out of the pockets of our garbage collectors and is that really the way we want to save money Desmond Yeah I think well, I think that's the question is uh who does this really benefit I don't know how much better the service is in the west end I mean I think uh it's I mean I live in the west end and this the garbage service is fine I have GFL now um there's nothing wrong with it but this isn't the grand kind of city building stuff that we really need right now. It might be good for some partisan interest. The first round didn't save as much money, by the way, as was first uh, for forecast with everything Ford does. It's always hyperbole. So uh, in addition to, yeah, it not being that big of a cost savings, why do workers have to suffer? I mean, we're going to talk about the minimum wage. Does no one believe that people keeping more of their own money or having more to begin with to try and raise a family in the city is a good idea? Well, the, the argument would actually be exactly that, that keep people keeping more of their money is a good idea, and that it's, it's taxpayers we're talking about who keep more of their money rather than giving it to, uh, to garbage collectors. But, um, I mean, if you want to leap on to the... We were going to talk about the uh, provincial government has set up a panel to investigate how we uh, deal with the minimum wage, how we make increases to it. There's been dramatic increases in the minimum wage... Uh, over the last 10 years, uh, but there's a freeze on the minimum wage now, and this uh, impact study, I think it's 1050 right now, right? Mm-hmm. Is this, uh, should it, should it be 1025, sorry. Uh, should it be higher than that? 
Well, I think just one thing I would say really quickly is that um, there were dramatic increases uh, in the McGinty years in the minimum wage, but that was after a very long period of essentially frozen minimum wages uh, in the Mike Harris years. So we still... uh, I think I'd have to recheck the math, but I think we've just basically caught up to you know what the minimum wage used to be worth before, you know after inflation. Yeah, and we're we're nowhere near where well I think it peaked in the mid seventies. Yeah, in, basically in in actual spending dollars. Denise, you've been pretty quiet about all of this. <laughs> um, the minimum wage. So on my way here, I read a post by Armin Yelnesian from the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives. Um, And so she sort of counterbalanced some of the arguments that say, number one, if you increase the minimum wage, then there will be job losses, especially among the young. So she pointed out that young people have had an increasing unemployment, even with the minimum wage frozen. So that's not the only reason. Um, And then she also sort of questioned this idea that the middle class is not shrinking because she said that what it takes to get into the middle class now is even harder, you know, more education and more debt in terms of that education. Um, And so if raising the minimum wage is bad because companies will therefore cut jobs, um, the suggestion that Stephen Gordon made in the piece that you sent us was that we increase a tax benefit, the working income tax benefit. But won't people get angry about that? Like, won't they say, you know, because if you give someone an income tax break, then you have to give someone else an income tax increase. And so then I think the argument will be, well, those people are hardworking. Why should they pay more? Well, I mean, I, th- I think the argument would be, and uh, none of our listeners have read those background pieces <laughs> that I sent you. So, um, but, uh, but I think the argument would actually be that if, if the minimum wage is an attempt to redistribute income from the wealthy to the less wealthy by, by forcing employers or, st- or shareholders, whatever, to, um, to take money that would otherwise be profit and pay it to their employees or more likely pass that cost on to consumers. If it's a redistribution attempt, that the correct vehicle for redistribution would be the government, right? You tax uh, the people who you think uh, can afford to pay taxes and you give the money directly to poor people. Uh, I mean, that, that would be the argument. Uh, and I'm, I'm very much in favor, actually, of, a, of dealing with poverty by giving money directly to poor people. And I'm not afraid of... Uh, taxing it. But that seems to be politically untenable because as much well, as experts always talk about it, nobody ever nobody but ever my argument would be, you know, they're working. They don't really need a tax benefit. Like, they're working. Why aren't they paid enough for their work? You know, if you make it a tax benefit, it becomes between two groups of people. Whereas in terms of work, it's like the worker and the employer. Um, and shouldn't the employer be paying their worker enough for their job and to survive on? I, I think about that when I think of the service sector as well, is that, you know, by the rules, you're allowed to pay somebody in the service sector less than the minimum wage, a lot less in some cases. And why do we allow that for somebody who's working? How come their work, the value of that work isn't being acknowledged? And another way that we prove that we have a different standard is that uh, we don't index uh, in Ontario the rate of anything like welfare or minimum wage to any inflation that we know is happening. So we always get far behind and say, oh, yeah, isn't that too bad that working people kind of took another hit or people on well, assistance? I mean, clearly, if, if there's an argument to have these kind of programs or these kind of things, then there's an argument to index them to inflation. But I think, I mean, the, the reason why servers in restaurants have a lower minimum wage is because they make a tremendous amount of their income through tips, right? And certainly counter-service people should be exempted from that, actually. But but I, I worked in the restaurant industry for a lot of years, and uh, and. I don't, I don't think there's an argument that very many waiters at full-service restaurants earn less than people working for minimum wage at, say, McDonald's. Uh, it depends what restaurant, though, no? 
I don't know. I worked in coffee shops where I could, I could, you know, my my wages and tips combined, you could count on fifteen twenty dollars an hour, um, and and you know, e- even in mid level restaurants, it certainly depends. Uh, if you're in the kind of place where people don't tip, right. then clearly you can't depend on tips, right? But if you're in the kind of place where people do tip you, then then it, it's not even depending on price point so much. But anyway, that's and a bit of a sideline. Well, and I would just very quickly say to that, I mean, I worked at Starbucks for a while where uh, I was making substantially more than minimum wage and still got tips. So I don't think that there's necessarily an argument that uh, tips should uh, be discounted out of your wages because of that. No, I mean, there's a whole separate argument about yeah. whether the <laughs> custom of tipping and, and how accepted it is and all of that is. I mean, but yeah, I mean, Quentin Tarantino only touched on it in the <laughs> beginning of <laughs> Reservoir Dogs. But um, we are um, running out of time. I did want to talk about the knives seem to be out after the provincial by-elections for uh, Tim Hudak. Uh, now, uh, John, you work as a Queen's Park reporter. Yeah. Uh, that's what they say. Is, does this make any sense? Well, in the broader context, uh, you know, Hudak lost the, I mean, he came in second, but he lost the general election, and then they've lost uh, six of the seven by-elections that have come since the general. So, um, and, you know, th- he's had years to get good at this, and, and the people around, you know, not the, not the people in his closest circle, obviously, but the people in the, the Progressive Conservative Party are saying, uh, you know, they're not seeing the signs of progress that they expected to. Um, I'm actually not really a big fan of, of uh, parties ditching leaders in trouble um, as, as a general rule. You know, Dalton McGuinty lost his first by elec- or first general election uh, that a lot of people expected him to, to win. So and Stephen Harper. Stephen Harper. Uh, you know, Jack Layton lost a bunch before he did really well in 2011. So Yeah, I mean, should there be like a, a, a two-general election uh, grace period for every <laughs> leader because it does seem like like most successful leaders some get lucky but most n- need an election to introduce themselves and get their stride and, and work the kinks out and get the loyalty of the party yeah. although the disloyalty of the party seems to be what's here I mean, Denise you have any uh, any thoughts about this now if you were if you were running the conservative right, party well, of politics Ontario politics is a dirty business it sure right? is so it's his job to convince them to keep him and I guess it's been one and a half elections and you know maybe. This is one of those leadership questions where, like, if if he can't lead his own party, then what's the pitch to lead the province, right? I mean, that's a big – I think that that's a big rhetorical leap sometimes when that gets said. I, I think there's some truth to it, but Tim Hudak hasn't really shown the ability to uh, invigorate anybody with any new ideas. And as much as politics is a blood sport, I totally agree – it, you know, saying things that other people aren't saying and challenging uh, your 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 uh, challenging the position that you hope to hold it in, in a different way still makes the news and still matters to people. And Tim Hudak has shown himself to be very, I think, small-minded. It's very petty. It's very like let's cut wages, let's go after workers, let's go after someone. Uh, he doesn't talk so much about what he wants to build in the province of Ontario as so much as who's obstructing it from going back to its previous glory. Maybe even for the members of his party who uh, buy into those policy prescriptions, uh, the framing of them to sell it to the general public needs to be a bit more building than, I don't know. I actually think people believe the government should be helping right now, and I think that's why he's failing. All right, well, if the provincial conservatives are in need of policy consultants, I have some in the room here right now. We're just about out of time, so we're going to go to another song. Uh, This is The Lowest of the Low.
smile or two say And everything I learned about you I learned through the pit of my stomach anyway And I forget about you If I could dare But I just want to make love to you In some dark rainy street somewhere
Yes, you nearly kissed me blind on Bathurst Street. That's a kind of um, story uh, I can relate to because I think I've been there. I used to live on Bathurst Street. Um, uh, we are talking about Toronto stories today on the Keenan Wire radio program. Sean McAuliffe, the founder of Murmur, one of the founders of Murmur, as well as a, a writer of uh, some renown in this city, is joining me today. Now, if you've seen Murmur's green ear signs on posts around the city, you may or may not know what that they are a portal to the living, breathing history of our town or of some parts of it. They're uh, very personal stories, Sean. Yeah, uh, we kind of took the model of, of oral histories but made it, uh, made it personal. And so when you call one of the signs, the number on the sign, uh, the person telling you the story is almost like they're standing next to you telling you the story. There's no, there's no interviewer. Um, it's just them sharing a personal memory or some history that they love about the spot uh, it, with you. In, in honor of the 10th anniversary, I thought it would be really appropriate to play some of those stories. So we've chosen uh, a selection of them. The first one is uh, Suhail, and it's about six. 65 Wellesley Street, which is uh, in the church in Wellesley Village. Uh. So you're standing now at the corner of Church and Wellesley. If you look a bit south of here, you'll really see the, the bulk of the gay community and the gay village here in the area. Um, I was living here just one block west of this, uh, this corner when I first came to Canada in 2001. That was maybe a couple of months before 9-11. I myself came from the Middle East. I'm a, um, a Muslim immigrant who came here and, and found this area as a safe uh, place for me to be uh, gay and to be out and not to be worried about my, uh, you know, any, any kind of oppression or, or cultural prejudice. I was uh, just north of here, if you look north, uh, you'll see the community center, the 519, where I was actually running support groups for queer Muslims who are coming here to find a safe space to be out, to talk about their sexuality and their cultural identity and their religious identity, and reconciling all of these things, because it was safe to be here. This is our safe spot in the city as immigrants. On that morning of 11th uh, of September of 2001, I was walking uh, up the street, up to this, this point where you are standing right now, when somebody approached me and my friend and just said, did you hear the news? Did you know what was happening in New York this morning? Um, they went on telling us about the planes hitting the, the buildings and, and the disaster that happened. Immediately after that moment, I started hearing people on the street saying things like, it must be the Arabs, it's the Muslims who did it, it's the Muslims, it's the Arabs. Something shifted dramatically for me when I heard that. I suddenly stopped becoming the gay man who was feeling safe in his gay environment and gay village. I suddenly became the Arab, the Muslim, and that was the main thing that came up to me. Most people around me did not know who I am and, and where I'm from, but... I just felt like everybody's looking at me and giving me these accusa accusative looks. I had to walk away. Suddenly I had to walk away from this, this street and this neighborhood and walk fast and go home because I wasn't feeling safe on the street. I needed to go home and feel safe inside my, my own four walls. This was a turning uh, moment for me in realizing my, my identity, why I'm here, what this means to me, being an immigrant, being in North America, being in Canada and how much safety and and uh, and how much I can feel at home here. It changed everything for me and made me go into a new direction with my life. It was maybe a good moment, good revelation to make me realize the reality of things and realize that as much as we think that we are um, 
we have dealt with so much oppression and discrimination being queer, we still have lots of internal issues that we need to deal with within our communities in terms of racism and, and discrimination. And that led me to, to a new uh, path of career to, to work within these issues and, and realize all the the goodness within our communities that we need to invest in, in and build on to create a better environment for, for immigrants and, and refugees who are queer and who are coming here to Canada to, to find a place they can call home and be safe. My name is Suhail Abul Samid. I've lived in Canada for seven years. All right. So that was um, that was Suhail, whose story you could normally hear if you were at uh, church in Wellesley and you phone a number on a sign. What did uh, you know? I asked you to, to suggest a selection, and what 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 about that story is is interesting to you if you're standing there on the street and hearing it? I like that one because it shows you know there's a certain love of the place, um, but then it brings in bigger stories and layers it on top. And and I walk through that intersection a lot, um, and and I think about nine eleven now sometimes walking through it. That's sort of the power of storytelling. Um, so Suhail shares you know his 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 love of the neighborhood, but then also it scratches at the surface um, rather deeply of of you know Toronto's mythical tolerance and diversity our strength. Um, so some of the stories have a little bit of uh, or a lot of you know heaviness attached to them. Yeah, um, and also well. like these layers of identity that a lot of Torontonians have. Where he, you know, there's this moment where he switches in his mind from a gay man to a Muslim man, from, yeah. a, from someone at home in that community to somebody fearful in it. Yeah, and then and and that that can switch for a lot of people so quickly. Um, and then for other people, you know, they never have to worry about that. Um, mm-hmm. Is something I think about. You know, after hearing the story, after we recorded it and put it up. Now that, that, now, that was a very personal story. The next story that we're going to hear, too, is a lot of these other murmur stories. Um, some of them, like that, are, are a bit of biography as much as they're about the place. Some of them are much more particularly about the place where you're standing. This is uh, Marion. So I'm standing outside of Shopsy's. Shopsy used to be. They're not there anymore. That was the place to be for a corned beef sandwich or a knish. And um, 1937, my family was too poor to even have that sort of thing. We'd have to have the meats that were fatter so they'd be cheaper. Across the street is Switzer's, and they're a delicatessen too, so they were competing. So uh, he was part, Shopsy, who uh, at the time was learning how to play the violin at our Christmas parties, would bring his violin. He was a a big fellow and uh, uh, rosy-cheeked and uh, quite quiet, quite personable. And uh, we would have our Christmas parties with entertainment from the children, who some of them were very talented, like Johnny Altwerger, who became Georgie Alt, who played Ferrari Shaw. Two doors south of uh, Shopsy's was the theater, the Victory Theater. And they had a lot of Jewish shows. It was quite famous for Jewish. Now, this was big reviews. This was big time because even the poorest people, my parents, who were very poor, still went to the theater. As little money as they had uh, on certain nights when they had these plays that were uh, heart-wrenching, you know, they would always show you plays of the old country and of this really sob in Yiddish and these people would that would be their outlet to to do that but the Victory Theatre in later time did become a burlesque house and although I never saw uh, one of their shows 
I was too busy dancing myself at the casino. Name is uh, Marion Green. So, you know, these are not um, Murmur Project. The Murmur uh, is celebrating 10 years, you know, uh, but these are, these are not like historical plaques. They're a different kind of experience, a different kind of information you get. Yeah, that, that one you would hear, sorry, if you were standing outside 285 Spadina, which is near Dundas, right? Yeah, uh, right at the corner. It's very much the lived memory of, uh, you know, the memory that people have of the city. So they're not, we don't fact check the stories, you know, because our, <laughs> our memories of things, you know, they, they get fuzzy. Um, you know, and Marion, I think when I recorded her in 2005, she was probably about 90 years old. So she was remembering Spadina pre-Chinatown when it was very much the Jewish neighborhood in, in Toronto. Now, we have one more uh, murmur story to play, uh, to, and uh, maybe we'll do that to close out the show, because I think, uh, you know, in the absence of our theme music in our special studio today, it would be a nice way to end off. But uh, before we get to that, I'd like to thank my guest today, Sean McAuliffe. Uh, his column appears in the Toronto Star on Fridays, and his book, Stroll, is available in all your finer bookshops in buildings and online. And, of course, I'd also like to thank the panel, Desmond Cole, Denise Benalcasun, John Malcolm McGrath, this show is produced by Brian Goman, and thanks to our emergency board techs, Alan Webb and Andy Barniba. Did I get that right? Uh, she's laughing in the next room. The podcast will be available soon at thegridto.com. You can subscribe to it through iTunes. Uh, that is the Keenan Wire program for this week, and I thank you for spending the Mormon with us. Now we're going to end the program by listening to uh, an eccentric little murmur story from Pete uh, Pelisek, and it's about 274 uh, Augusta. It's a, a appropriately eccentric, eccentric Sean, for, for Kensington Market? I think so. I mean, there's a lot of characters in Kensington, and this is, this is a story about one of them. It was uh, towards the end of May in 1994, and I was walking home uh, down Augusta towards College Avenue. It was around 3 or 4 in the morning. And I think it was a weeknight, like a Tuesday night. And I was just a little bit past uh, a laundromat up to my right. And I'm looking down towards college. And across the street on the other side of college, I see a deer run by. I'd never actually in my life seen a deer of the wild before. And I was like, holy crap. So by the time I got up to college, I was looking around. I didn't see this deer 